Folks, if you turn with me to page 985 there in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 18. I don't know if you're beginning to become familiar with how the gospel accounts work um, in terms of their structure. Quite often there's two or three different uh, little pieces of teaching or ideas caught together. And, and today's passage is a little bit like that. Uh, but I, I hope that there's a, a thread running through it. And as we, as we spend a few minutes thinking about this, uh, our prayer is that God would, would show uh, the important things in this passage to us uh, and let all else uh, fall into the background. So let's pray together. Father God, we gather here and, and we want to hear your word. At least at our best, we do. It's possible that some of us are here and we're, uh, we feel distant from you or, or maybe cross and angry with you. We pray that you would come gently by your spirit and speak to us. Lord, maybe some of us don't feel like we have heard your voice for months or years. We pray that you would break in to our lives and, and come and meet with us. Lord, by your spirit, be here in this moment. Share with us those things that we need to know. Amen. I am the greatest. Do you know who it was who unashamedly stood before the world and said that? Maybe a number of people have. The person I'm thinking of is Muhammad Ali, the boxer. I am the greatest. Whenever he stood and he, he said that before a, a worldwide audience, he struck a chord deep in the human heart because being the greatest is, a, is an important aspect of the human condition. We, we want to know who is the strongest or the smartest or the most beautiful or judging by last night's television schedule, who is the most talented. We want to know who is the greatest. And we dream, we dream of the, the moment and the time when it's, it's us. We long to be the greatest. We long to be recognized as top dog somewhere at some point in our lives. In our passage this morning, Jesus deals with just that desire for greatness. And he says three things about greatness. He wants to reorient us away from this desire for greatness. He says, first of all, that the greatest are the ones who realize that they're actually little children. He says that caring for little ones, not focusing on great ones, is what life's all about. And he says that every single little one is important to God. So let's, let's begin just in the beginning of our passage there. Verse 1. Our passage begins with the disciples coming to Jesus and asking, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? As is so often the case, the preoccupation of the world is also the preoccupation of the church. 
People who, who claim to love and follow Christ have exactly the same agendas as those who, who wouldn't make those claims. Who's the big shot in your church, Jesus? Since we're the chosen twelve, it must be one of us, but we're not sure who. Which one of us is the big news in your kingdom? Who is the greatest? Folks, don't let the irony of the timing be lost on you here. Um, If you can remember back to some of the stuff that we have looked at recently, you'll know that we've recently discovered the identity of Jesus becomes clear in this part of Matthew's gospel. He's the Messiah. And twice in the last two or three times we've been together, we've seen Jesus say, I am the Messiah, but I've come to suffer and to die. So Jesus is talking about suffering and death. And at just that moment, his disciples are preoccupied with finding which of them is the big shot. Who, who is the big guy in the kingdom of God? So this question of the disciples, it certainly doesn't show them in a good light. But neither, I would suggest, do many of the motives and the behaviors of leaders in the church of Christ or members of the church of Christ today either. So let's identify ourselves with the disciples and recognize that there's every possibility that we're asking questions just like this one. Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest in this community? Jesus' reply here is as surprising as it is powerful. He calls a, calls a weak kid and gets them to come and stand among the, the 12 disciples. And he says, listen carefully, because this is important. He says, look at this little kid here. He's not worried about being the big shot. He's not yet a social climber. He's not yet been seduced by his desire for power and prestige and position. Unless you change and become like him, you will not see the kingdom of God. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the disciples must have been shocked here. I think, I think that's the response uh, that I would expect in a context like that. Jesus says, if, fellas, if your perspective doesn't change, then there's a question mark over whether you are enjoying the kingdom of God in the present. If your understanding of life with me and life in my kingdom is so badly skewed that you're still asking these kinds of questions, then you've missed something. You've missed a lot. It's possible that you've missed enough that you don't even qualify for life in my kingdom. It's a a pretty challenging message that Jesus brings at this point. Jesus chose this child as a visual aid for the the 12 disciples gathered around because he knows that a child is socially insignificant. Children are not the great ones. Not in our culture today, and they weren't in the culture of Jesus. They're not the, the movers and shakers. They're not the ones who influence how life works. And Jesus says to his disciples, fellas, you need to change and become like that. Just an interesting wee thing in passing. The word that Jesus uses here for change is the word repent. 
It's the same word that he uses in those early chapters in Matthew's gospel where he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. If we're still running with some ideas in our head about repentance being a a sort of a morality issue where you give up a few bad habits like drinking, smoking, and saying bad words, we've missed a lot. Jesus is asking us to change very, very fundamentally. He's saying change from being the kind of people who want power and position and prestige into people humble, like this little child. Repent. Turn around. So the discussion here began when the disciples asked a question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And the answer comes in verse 4. Jesus says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Greatness in the kingdom is a matter of humility, not of power or of position. Teresa de Lisieux was a Carmelite nun in late 19th century France, and she had a wonderful grasp of what it was to be a child before God. She called her way of life the little way, And here's what she said. This little way is to recognize one's own nothingness. To expect everything from God as a child expects everything from its father. It's to realize one's nothingness and to give oneself wholly like a child into the arms of the good God. It means never being discouraged by your faults. Because children fall frequently, but are too small to hurt themselves much. Isn't that a powerful image? Too small to hurt yourself much. Not some overinflated sense of your own importance and ego so that if something ever goes wrong, you're in crisis. A simple understanding that, that I'm a humble child of God. That when I go wrong, he will forgive me, and I move on. Folks, do you see what Teresa is saying here? Rather than desiring to be the great ones, which is right at the heart of human nature, we need to be converted, we need to be changed. We need to stay little. We need to stay in a place where we know we can be carried by God. We need to live a life of dependence on him, not independence from him. The further we are with Christ, the more we know that we depend on him. Folks, I don't know if if it's coming across to you here in God's word what a crucial matter this is. I think it's a choice that each one of us really has to make. Are we going to continue living on the ladder of success treating life as one long competition? Are we going to struggle all the days of our lives to be the greatest? And are we going to lie in bed at night, tormented, worrying about whether or not we're the greatest? Are we going to live that way? Or can we live differently? Can we repent from from that and, and change? Can we become children of God 
little ones. We'll trust him to watch over us and give us what we need. Jesus calls us to a path of humility. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of God. Jesus not only teaches us that we're supposed to become like, the, like children before God, children of God ourselves, he says that caring for other little ones is what life's all about. Look at verses 5 to 7. Whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. We need to be clear about something this morning before we go too much further. This passage, although Jesus mentions little ones and and has pulled a child out of the crowd, this passage is not about children. Jesus is talking here about disciples, people who live as children of God. And when he introduced the little child in verses 1 to 4, he told the disciples, this is how you're to be. This is what you're to become. So he's talking to a bunch of grown men using the example of a little child. So this entire passage is about disciples. In verse 5 here, Jesus says, If you welcome a disciple of mine, one of my little ones, in my name, then you welcome me. Flick back for a moment, just a few pages, chapter 10 and verse 40. Chapter 10 of Matthew's Gospel, verse 40. Jesus is sending his disciples out to preach the good news to the people around. And what does he say to them? He says, whoever receives you, receives me. So he's already introduced this idea that if you receive a disciple of Jesus, you receive Jesus. But look on down to verse 42. Jesus makes it entirely clear that whenever he thinks of little ones, he's thinking of his disciples. He says, if anyone gives a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. Okay, so in this passage where we are in Matthew 18, we're clear that Jesus isn't talking about little children. He's talking about his disciples who are learning to live as children of God. Maybe you're a bit confused, though, because you're thinking, but is there not that passage where Jesus welcomes little children? Is that not something you mentioned this morning uh, when you were introducing the baptism? Turn over to Matthew 19, verses 13 to 15. As soon as you see those passages, or or those verses in that passage, you'll recognize them as that well-known story. This is the moment where Jesus does welcome children and he he challenges his disciples who've been saying, no, the kingdom of God's not about kids. So I just wanted to clarify that for you. Jesus' preference for, for children, his willingness to be a champion for them in a culture which ignored them, that's undisputed. And we see that in Matthew 19. But this passage is about something different. Jesus is talking about his his little ones, his disciples. Jesus says here then 
in these verses that it's fundamentally important how we treat other disciples. It's important in our context how we treat other church members. It's important how we, sitting here in these pews, treat each other. Jesus highlights here two alternative ways of behaving in this community. He says in verses 5 to 7, the disciple can either be the kind of person who welcomes and encourages other children of God, or we can be the kind of person who causes them to stumble and to sin. Very real alternatives. Both of these types of disciples are present in the church of Jesus Christ. Think with me for a second about the encouraging disciple. The encouraging disciple is the the guy who welcomes people around them. He makes space for them in his life and in his church. She wants the very best for other people. He doesn't expect church life to be structured entirely around him and his needs and his desires. What he wants is the best for every single member of the community. She isn't preoccupied with how many people speak to her at the family gatherings. She's more interested with speaking to to other people, giving them a welcome, receiving them in the name of Jesus. Welcoming disciples, the kind that Jesus is talking about here, they don't sit and wait for the world to come to them. They do what Jesus says. They welcome others. They welcome little ones in his name. And in doing so, Jesus says, they find that they're welcoming him. When you hear of a a disciple of Jesus Christ described in those terms, it's maybe triggered for you some ideas in your own head of people like that. Because they're just a wonderful blessing to a community like this. And I know as I look down that there are many of such people here. But Jesus warns us about another reality here. He says that disciples of Jesus Christ can cause others to stumble and fall into sin. Instead of being welcomers or or encouragers, it's possible that members of the community can be discouragers. We can be unfriendly to those who arrive in the community in need of companionship and a welcome. We can be self-centered To the extent that we're a drain on the resources of the community, the emotional resources of all those around us. In the end, it's possible that some Christians live such an impoverished version of life in the kingdom of God that they act as a a discouragement to others. People look at our lives and they say, if that's what it's like to be a Christian, I I don't want to know. I don't want to be a part of that. By our lives and our whole way of being, we cause others to stumble in their walk with God. Folks, I'm sure you'd agree that's a a terrible possibility. And it's no wonder that Jesus speaks out against it as as strongly as he does in verses 6 and 7. Let's be sure 
that we are, are welcoming disciples, those who encourage other little ones. Let's not fall into the, the role of being discouragers of others on their way to Christ. There's a section there which I'm not going to deal with in any great length, verses 8 and 9. Because each disciple is important to, to Jesus Christ, he actually warns us to look out for ourselves as well in, in just a few verses. This is quite famous stuff because it's a repeat from some of Jesus' teaching in, in the Sermon on the Mount. The verses here about plucking out your eye and cutting off an arm or a leg, they're easily misunderstood. Do you really imagine that Jesus wants you to pluck out an eye or chop off an arm or a leg? I hope the answer is no. I hope the answer is no. Even if we did, think it through for a moment, get, get into the logic of this. If we're trying to deal with sin in our lives, plucking out an eye or chopping off an arm and a leg, does that deal in any way with deep-rooted sin in our hearts? Not at all. So Jesus isn't encouraging any sort of actual physical mutilation. What's the point he's making here? I think what Jesus is doing here is he's saying in the, the, the strongest terms possible how how active we have to be in cutting out sin in our lives. He's speaking in hyperbole. He's exaggerating for effect. He's saying, if you see sin in your life, if there's something that's destroying you, don't stop at any, to go to any lengths to get rid of it. Are you here this morning and you're involved in a relationship that's keeping you from flourishing in Jesus Christ? End it. Now. That's what Jesus says. Because it's better to flourish in life. It's better to, to remain on your path to the kingdom of God with, with that missing from your life than it is to, to not make it in the kingdom. Are you here this morning and you're struggling with something like internet pornography? got you, has had for a while, and, and its, its power is growing in your life, unplug from the internet, get the computer out of the house, make sure you don't work in your workplace, in a place where you aren't in the company of other people, find ways of, of cutting this out of your life. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's asking us to be deadly serious about caring for our own souls, particularly taking the steps that we can to, to cut sin out of our lives. And he says that because he loves us and because we matter to him. We're going to finish just now in a couple of minutes' time. Jesus says that the great ones in the kingdom are the ones who realize, actually, that they're like little children, that they ought to be humble before God. He says that caring for other little ones is what life's really all about. And in the final verses, Jesus tells us why 
why this perspective rules. It's because every single little one matters to God. Every single one. He tells that story, that famous story about the lost sheep, about the lengths that the farmer goes to to bring back that single lost sheep. He leaves 99 others to find the one who's missing. Jesus says, in the same way, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. Folks, do you get the implications of what Jesus is saying here? We're told constantly that life is a contest. That the only people who are important are the ones who win. The smart ones, the strong ones, the beautiful ones, the talented ones. These people are important. And it doesn't matter very much about anyone else. If you have a hundred sheep, number one is the important one. Number two and number three we might pay attention to. But number one hundred, so what? I have 99 others. And these are the great ones. These are the important ones. And what does Jesus say? He says, no. That's a lie. He says in the kingdom of God, all are important. Number one and number 100 are equally important to me. There will never be a person who's unimportant to me. Folks, I hope that as we hear Jesus' words here today, as he challenges us to give up our, our hankering after position, prestige, and power, give up your notions of being the great ones. Recognize that you're a little one, a child of your loving Father in heaven, someone who will never, ever be forgotten about, who will never be set aside, no matter how ordinary we are, no matter how little so-called greatness there is in our lives, we are it. We're the apple of God's eye, the desire of his heart, the people who are so important to him. Let's pray together.